0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, today is May the 22nd. It is the birthday of George Best, one of the greatest footballers of his or indeed any other age. European Footballer of the Year in 1968, winner of the European Cup with Manchester United that year as well. It seemed almost unimaginable that the following year would bring him to Lee side and playing. For Cork Celtic Football Club, uh, what followed was something of a farce which maybe said an awful lot about the direction not only of George Best's life at that time but also the direction of Irish domestic football in the 1970s and Donald Fallon, who only last week joined us from underneath uh, the uh, the bowels of Croke Park has decided to change codes entirely to back, bring us... Back to the garrison game, Gav, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just, just in the name of balance, you know. Um, in fairness, all those who were lucky enough to see George Best play, at, at least in his prime, and it, and it's important disclaimer. In his prime, they all do agree in his brilliance. Yeah, you
1: know the old jokes: Zidane good, Pele better, George best. You know, a lot has been said about George Best's footballing abilities. Uh, your favourite footballer's favourite footballer, you could say. You know, mm. but I think the the story of George Best, unfortunately. Uh, is that he was as much on the front pages of the newspapers as he was in the back pages and that's never really good for an athlete is it but i think that the finest praise comes from bobby charlton just incredible words bobby said at the time when he first got in the team no one had seen his like before someone who was so small and tough but would go into tackles someone who had the ability to turn people inside out and beat anyone he liked george was as good as anyone you will see it was paradise watching George play football And that's coming
0: from Bobby Charlton yeah
1: that's an incredible compliment
0: because I was only just thinking this week because you know with the with the late late on Friday night and, and the Jack Charlton sort of reminiscence and like Jack Charlton describing Bobby as the greatest footballer that he had ever seen and he was lucky enough to be his brother if Bobby thought jo- George was that good oh like incredible. that's telling you something
1: and what a, what a line Paradise watching George play football and I think you know you divide the career of, of George best into two halves you know football is a game of of two halves there's the story really up to the end of the Manchester United uh, years and then there's the tragedy that followed but it's a great story. I mean, discovered as a boy of 15 in Belfast by a Man United scout. United had that unrivaled scouting eye in Ireland, north North and south. I mean, mm. every teenager in Dublin and Belfast was being watched by Manchester United. Uh, the news heralding the discovery of George was a telegram sent to Matt Busby, I think I found you a genius. Wow,
0: <laughs> what more do you need than those seven words? That, this is the way is.
1: Italian people talk about football. This yeah. is like this is religious stuff, you know. Paradise watching George play yeah. football. I think I found you a genius. Unbelievable.
0: Uh, just you're you reminding me, by the way, when you talk about your favourite footballer's favourite footballer. Uh, my favourite footballer uh, retired 25 years ago this week, and it blows my mind that Eric Cantona has been off the pitch for that long. 25 years this week, wild. And um, this story, say though, isn't about George Best's glory days. It's about uh, a weird time for the domestic game on this country? A really weird time.
1: Yeah, a very, very odd time. A player arriving into domestic football, a star attraction at a time when Irish football was really struggling uh, to maintain the attention of the Irish public. And a league that had been packing in tens of thousands of people just a few short decades earlier was really struggling. And it's not uncommon, as we'll hear, uh, today, in that decade, for clubs to look for a star, you know, get us a World Cup winner. So we end up with things like Gordon Banks standing between the posts uh, in Inchicore, which is incredible. Which, enough.
0: until you sent in your notes this morning, I had no idea he had ever done that. We, <laughs> we, we will come back to that. But Goor- actually... Gordon Banks, who like won the 66 World Cup with England, yeah. paid for St. Pat's. Yeah, in the 70s. And he's actually legally
1: blind at the time in one eye. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the Shamrock Rovers fans chant at him Gordon, give us a wink, which is brilliant. <laughs> But he keeps a clean sheet against Sham Rovers, and he only had one eye. So you know, vision and one eye. So what does that say about them in the seventies? Uh, European champions, you know, lining up in Cork, George Best. And it was a tactic, or we might say, you know, it wasn't a tactic, it was a gamble that many clubs took in, in, in the League of Ireland. Mm. Get us a big name, get someone off the telly that they know, and hopefully they'll come back uh, to watching. But for Cork, you know, the best bet didn't really pay off as we'll hear today. And even Bobby Charlton, who we heard praise from earlier on, yeah, yeah. you know, he ended up playing in the domestic Irish game. Yeah, he game
0: played for Waterford. For, for a Waterford. Yeah.
1: And there was a cynical kind of view of all of this even at the time the Irish Times wrote about yesterday's father figures from the soccer scrap heap you know lining out in the Irish League but Best was young and that's the real tragedy of this story he was still in his 20s when this happened
0: This is already a piece of two halves because that's another uh, seven word epithet. you've gone from I think I found you a genius to yesterday's father figures from the soccer scrap heap and we're only a couple of minutes into the slot It's quite strange that George Best's playing days actually began with United because you'd think if he was the product of a scouting network you'd think that he was already in the eye or already signed up with some Club on his home island.
1: Yeah, Glen Tor the club he followed uh, as a boy didn't think he was good enough, which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's that's wow. a great that's the, guy who the, story the <laughs> of, uh, Absolutely, absolutely, this band won't make it. Uh, but you know, best he recounts in his in his first autobiography. Born in Belfast, 22nd of May, today, 1946, into what he called a solid working class family, Protestant by religion, decent and honest in its beliefs. Dad, active in the Orange Order. And Best kind of talks about the importance of some of that in his early identity, but football really comes to dominate his life from a very, very young age. And I love how he talks about going over to United uh, in the memoir when he's picked up by the scout. Uh, really frank, you know, he says United offered us a two week trial in order to have a look at us and we believed that after that they pack us up home again we didn't think we were setting off on a glittering new career and a new life when we boarded that boat we were just determined to make the most of a lucky break which had already earned us the envy of all our friends That's so innocent mm. you know to be picked off the streets of Belfast to have a trial at United was enough but we all know what followed an incredible career 179 goals uh, in 470 appearances undoubtedly one of the greatest players uh, to ever wear the United jersey um, of and what course a number, what a number to wear what too. a number
0: or the, the the iconic man united number 7 again shared by eric canton and many others as well um what follows uh, for his, and his decline on the pitch which is what brings him to, to Cork which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes obviously it is led by his activities off the pitch
1: Yeah I think if there's like a, a
0: turning point in the story of George
1: Best a cultural turning point uh, it's the 4-1 defeat of Benfica in the European mm. Cup and then the Portuguese press fall in love with this guy this Belfast lad they call him El Beetle because you know, the Beatles are at the height of, of, mm. of stardom and you're know, the one historian of the game he argues Best is England's English football's first internationally recognised uh, celebrity figure. And best themselves... That, that's
0: quite remarkable even in its own right because if only two years previous they'd won the World Cup and then these guys were, were footballers that were known around the world, yeah. for them still not to be considered celebrity in their own right and then for this guy to come along and go oh this is the guy who'll actually make the front pages of the papers as well. Yeah. like that That's a very telling moment.
1: He has the hair, you know he has the look and uh, as best remembered everything went nuts. People wanted to know everything about me, not just my football views but what clothes and music I liked, what clubs I went to. That's nightclubs, not football clubs. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> everything I did was hip uh, or cool. And it's the unravelling of best, I think. Once he makes it to the front pages of the newspapers, as you say, he, he quite likes being there. Uh, and this unravelling happens at a really bad time. There's massive change at United. There's the arrival of Franco Farrell. I mean, poor old Franco Farrell only died earlier this year. Mm. Uh, Corconian, the only Irish-born manager uh, of Manchester United and for a long time, you know, he kind of existed as a a difficult question in a a pub quiz, didn't he? You know, who followed Matt Busby uh, at Manchester United, Mm. but it was a a, a bad time. Frank lost the job quickly, he ended up signing onto the dole, chasing wages from United and it wasn't just that Busby was gone, the the Busby team, or what was left of it, if you will, began to fall apart Mm. and people really remember Frank O'Farrell's time for George Best going AWOL. And I don't mean he was on the pitch and he wasn't really present in yeah, the game. No, he I mean, literally like, he wasn't disappeared. there. He, yeah, he literally disappeared.
0: Uh, and despite that level of management, uh, that is the reason why Mihal Martin is a Manchester United fan because Franco Farrell, the Cork man, was the boss at the time. Very uh, <laughs> And you can draw some parallels there, I'm sure, about people going, "Hey, well, uh, I don't know." Um, so where do you go after all of that then? So if you're you're a Manchester United legend and you're disgraced and you're basically literally not showing up for work. What do you do then?
1: He wanders a little bit. There's a spell in South Africa, uh, not renowned for its, you know, its soccer prowess, Weeks there. And then Stockport County. And if anyone knows the geography of that part of Northern England, Stockport is like a couple of train stops away. You mm. know, it's now considered the greater Manchester area. So he hadn't really gone that far geographically. But my God, you know, he tumbled downwards uh, a few divisions yep. and you know, a lot of the flair was gone. So that leaves the great question. Why would a Cork club invite a player like that to the Leas side? And I think you really have to begin this by saying the magnitude of the crisis facing Irish domestic football at the time they invite best here is extraordinary. Rory Croak, great journalist, capturing that time, he dug into the archives and he he pulled out this fact I thought was incredible. Uh, A clash between Shamrock Rovers and Home Farm at Milltown in in the 1970s brought in £55 in gate receipts. £55, wow. Milltown, you know, one of yeah. the spiritual homes of Irish football. Less than half of the revenue once generated by Rovers reserve games. So the league is in deep, deep trouble. There's can, £55 pounds on the
0: gate. You can understand why they sold Milltown. Yeah, basically, £55 if that's what's going pounds on yeah. the
1: gate of a Shamrock Rovers game in the 70s. Like The league is in,
0: in deep, deep trouble. So television, then I presume, uh, which we haven't mentioned up till now, is is presumably part of the story here, particularly given how the, the 66 World Cup and then the 68 European Cup had had this kind of global impact because of the reach of the new medium.
1: Yeah, television changes everything. And, you know, uh, today is not only George Best's birthday, it's also Oliver J. Flanagan's birthday, the man who said (laughs) there was no sex in Ireland before television. Uh, There was football in Ireland before television, and unfortunately, uh, televised football wasn't necessarily good for the domestic game. Mm. The World Cup in '66, people had just fallen in love with the romance of watching that on television. It was a massive cultural... Uh, impact. So you have this game at home that's really clinging on to its true disciples only, if you will. Yeah. And then this idea, yeah, let's utilise the star power of English people to sell tickets, and it works. Gordon Banks, you know, he draws twelve and a half thousand people to Inchicore to watch that game, Saint Pat's uh, Shamrock Rovers. And when the when Pat's are asked, you know, why Banks is only playing just one game, the manager is really brutally honest. He says, "We can't afford him." <laughs> 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 we,
0: just, we just can't afford to keep So, so, So this isn't yeah. some sort of like this AWOL or this kind of post-leisure retirement. This is like basically exhibition stuff where yeah. the guy is, is paid a fee to pay for one game.
1: And it's a good payday. And yeah. look, let's be honest, the lure of Cork for best is financial.
0: Just by being legally blind in one eye. Uh, uh, <laughs> well,
1: well, no, Bangs, that was Bangs. Best, yes, uh, so. best is down in Cork. And okay, look, yeah. Cork is a city that loves football always Mm. has Cork Hibernians Cork Celtic they're all part of the story of the game there but even in Cork the attendances had fallen really sharply in the 70s just like in Dublin and you know if someone wants to make a documentary on a bizarre Cork story I think this is it Cork is managed at the time by Bobby Tambling Chelsea legend he'd arrived in the city as a Jehovah's Witness (laughs) He'd gone to okay. Cork to preach the good word. He was still a great footballer. So he also finds the time to player manage Cork Celtic when he's not preaching about God on the streets. And someone of his stature, you know, some, uh, still a top goal scorer at Chelsea, I think, uh, he had connections in British footballing circles. And he's asked, you know, we need someone from England mm. that will get the crowds in. We need someone from the English game. And contact is made with Best.
0: Um so if if there is this kind of established culture where people are coming over basically and, and playing in competitive games, but basically on an exhibition basis just as a, a ruse to get people through the door, what kind of money are you talking? Like how much can a League of Ireland Club afford to, to pay out for a celebrity appearance?
1: Uh, isn't it interesting to also ponder like what are the other lads on the pitch getting? You know, what's yeah. the goalkeeper getting? or what's, you know, yeah. The, the what guy they, who gets yeah. displaced by Gordon Banks, what's he earning? per And how do yeah. they feel about that? I mean, it must have been, uh, on one level, deeply deeply humiliating for them. Some, some accounts suggest as much as £1,000 per game was offered to George Best, which is extraordinary in the 70s that's on money, a, yeah. a play-to-pay basis. Mm. And he doesn't have to do away games if he doesn't want to. So it's, it's really <laughs> strange. And he doesn't seem to show up for training. But December evening 1975, 12,000 people show up and Cork Celtic lose 2-0. Uh, to Drogheda United and he's kind of non-existent uh, on the the pitch and by the time he lines up again then for Cork Celtic subsequent home game against Bohemians the crowd is now 9,000 so you've dropped 3,000 people from yeah. one game to the next already, you know, and that says something, doesn't it? Yeah. But as the goalkeeper, Alfie, Alfie McCarthy, he, he was telling it to the, the Echo. He said, he did nothing for us. He wanted to take all the free kicks and corner kicks. But as we tried to play everything through him, we were always going to be in trouble if he lost possession. So he didn't exactly win the the hearts and minds, you might say, mm. of his fellow Cork Celtic uh, athletes.
0: He didn't win much uh, playing his team either because he didn't uh, end up playing very many times or saying very much about his time there.
1: Yeah, he lines up for three times for Cork Celtic and then in his autobiography it warrants just this, right? The games didn't mean anything to me but they helped me keep fit and Cork were more than happy with the publicity and the gate receipts. He went off wow, to North America. One sentence, that'll do. One that's sentence. It, that's yeah. the autobiography, one sentence. Yeah. And in, he, he's really dismissive about the game in America actually and the fans in America. Naturally the standard wasn't as high and the fans hadn't got a clue what they were watching which is brilliant. But in the States I suppose they were trying to do the same thing there. They were really trying to make soccer take off Mm. In soccer, as they know it, in the US. And they did what we did. You know, they, they tried to pull in big names in the British game and they'd bigger books uh, to do it. So, yeah. yeah, the Americans believed star power was everything.
0: Yeah. Who needs Cork Celtic when you've got the New York Cosmos and you can go and play with Pele instead of uh, some other Alfie McCarthy and goals, or whoever it is? No disrespect to the man. Um, unlike some of the wandering names of British football here, though, um, Best was still, and, and this is really what sets him apart from your Gordon Banks or your Bobby Charltons, he was still, surprisingly, actually quite young at the time of his little trip down to Leaside.
1: I think that is what's sad about this. It's one thing for footballers in their late 40s or 50s to have another go at it, you don't mm. know, and to come back to a domestic league or whatever it may be. Best is 29 years of age when he's playing for Cork Celtic. I mean,
0: there are still... And he's already so visually past it at that point. Totally. So that's that's totally. There, yeah.
1: there are brilliant players even today at the top tier of English football who are who are older than that, you know. And yeah, it is one thing to wheel out a veteran legend for a payday in retirement. It's quite another when they're in their 20s and the dream's already over. Mm. And look, big names clearly weren't enough at that time to save Irish football. They tried everything. You know, Rovers had the great Dunphy-Giles experiment. They tried everything. Uh, But Best wasn't even enough to save Cork Celtic. I mean, the club didn't really make it out of the decade. By 79, it was pretty much over. And by 80, it was folded up. But the thing about George Best that has to be said, I think, is he was 59 at the time of
0: his death. It's remarkable because he'd gone through so much and he'd been out of the public eye and then he'd come back and he'd he'd had his... Antibus implants and then he, yeah. he'd been working for Sky and then he came back and he clearly looked far the worse for wear but that he still had so much years left in his life had things not gone the wrong way.
1: Yeah, and you know he you know those words you see them all the time they, they, they pop up on social media you see them on, on car bumper stickers and everything else you know I spent a lot of money on booze, birds and fast cars the rest I squandered and it's funny but look there's a tragedy in it that humour really couldn't mask you know yeah. because he's telling the truth there and look the playing days They should have gone on much longer than they did. I mean, there there was a lot more in George Best than what we got to see on the pitch. Uh,
0: There sadly was, but uh, for the time that he was at the top of the world, he was quite literally uh, at the top of the world. Uh, George Best's birthday, born on this day in, what was it, in 1946? uh, 22nd of May, 1946. Were he still with us, he would still be, and this is remarkable, actually, how young he'd be. He'd only be 76 years old today. Wow. Which is remarkable considering how long he's gone. Uh, Donald Fallon, uh, not only are you the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast and the author of Henrietta Street from Tenement suburbia, we're still seeing you on telly for the next couple of weeks aren't we yeah two more weeks of Brainstorm one tomorrow to drive up the national blood pressure
1: which is on the connection between postcodes and property prices stop (laughs) you're really
0: pushing (laughs) our buttons here pal (laughs) (laughs) so that's a a half past eight tomorrow evening on RTE1 Donald Fallon uh, with Brainstorm and you can also get him on Three Gases Burning Podcast and his book Henry the Street from Tenement to Spurby as well and uh, the Community Books which are still I'm sure uh, still on sale in all good bookshops on the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.